Father, you would work through your word now and help us to learn from the sin and folly of Jacob and Laban. And Lord, we pray that you would make us loving people. And we ask that you do it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to open this morning by reading to you two Proverbs. The first is Proverbs 19, verse 25. Proverbs 19, 25 says, Strike a scoffer, and the simple will learn prudence. Reprove a man of understanding, and he will gain knowledge. Strike a scoffer, and the simple will learn prudence. So the scoffer is being struck, and because of that, someone else is looking at what happened to that scoffer and is learning from the, the, the discipline that was brought into that person's life. And the other is similar, Proverbs 21, 11, which says, When a scoffer is punished... The simple becomes wise. When a wise man is instructed, he gains knowledge. And if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, you know that this teaching, it, it resonates all through the pages of Proverbs, that you, you, you have a choice before you. You can either learn from the folly of others and the discipline that comes into their lives. You can see the consequences that they, can un, that they undergo because of their sin and foolishness, and learn from that, or you can engage in foolishness and sin yourself, and you can be disciplined for yourself. And obviously, Solomon, for his son, wants wisdom. He wants, he wants his people, his, his descendants, he wants them to learn from the mistakes of others. And we have the opportunity to do that this morning as we look at Genesis chapter 29. I would invite you to open to Genesis 29, and as you know, we've been... We've been in Genesis for some time, and we've been seeing how the Lord met the problem of human sin with this promise of land, seed, and blessing, and the seed promise is going to ultimately flower into the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. The land promise is ultimately going to be realized in the new heavens and new earth, and then the blessing is, is God's presence with his people to give them everything that they need. And in this passage, we're seeing Jacob, who is fleeing from his family in Genesis 29. He is leaving his family behind in the land of promise because, in part, Esau wants to kill him. And the reason Esau wants to kill him is because Jacob has stolen Esau's blessing from their father, Isaac. And so Esau is on the run, but he's also going over to the east, the land of the east, to Haran, where Abraham came from, to a branch of Abraham's family from which he can get a wife. And so we, we, we know how this is going to turn out. Jacob is going to find that branch of Abraham's family, and he is going to wind up with a couple of wives out of this. But the way that Moses presents this passage to us is very instructive. So I just want to remind you of the way in chapter 28, which we looked at the last time we were together, the Lord makes these promises to Jacob, promises that I suggested to you Jacob totally misses the point in response to these promises. 
So if you look at Genesis 28, 13, we, we read that the Lord stood above this stairway into heaven and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And then he promises the land, the land on which you lie, I will give to you. And then the seed and to your offspring, which let's just stop and observe. At this point, Jacob is a single man. And so the realization of the promise depends upon him being able to find this wife that he is going to seek. Verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So that's the promise that through the offspring, through the seed of Jacob, the problems of all the world are going to be resolved. And, and that promise ultimately is going to be realized in the Lord Jesus. And then the Lord says in verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Now I suggest, I would suggest, that Jacob should come away from this, this experience, worshiping the Lord. He should come away from this experience trusting the Lord. He should come away from this meditating on these promises, these words that the Lord has said to him, and walking in them, walking in the strength that the word of God gives to him. And that's not what he does. In response to this, as we saw last time, he's all excited about the place, and he thinks the place is a big deal. The place is irrelevant. God has said to Jacob, I'll be with you. And then he gets this rock and he says, I'm going to make this into a pillar and this is going to be the house of God. He's totally missing the point. And Moses continues to show us that Jacob is missing the point in the way that he contrasts Jacob's journey to the east for a wife with the journey of Abraham's servant to the east for a wife that we saw back in Genesis 24. And as we, as we get into Genesis 29, we'll compare and contrast Jacob with Abraham's servant, and we'll see, we'll see several significant differences. So look with me at chapter 29, verse 1. And we read here that Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And the text is not going to comment on these kinds of things, but this is a long arduous, dangerous journey. And this is a time when there aren't state troopers out there patrol patrolling the highways. There are bandits, there are Midianite traders, as we'll see in Genesis 37, that are looking for slaves that they can pick up and take off and sell in Egypt, as happens with, with Joseph. And in God's kind and good providence, Jacob has been delivered from all of that. This would be an occasion for Jacob to praise God. I came safely to Haran through this dangerous journey. And you look at the text again. There's no, there's no praise for God. And unlike Abraham's servant, if you look back at Genesis chapter 24, Abraham's servant prayed in verse 11. We read in Genesis 24, 11, he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, Oh, Lord, God, my, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. So Abraham's servant, unlike Jacob, is praying to the Lord, seeking the Lord to prosper his journey. No prayer here from Jacob. No thanksgiving to the Lord. Verse 2 of chapter 29. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. This is probably the same well 
that the, the servant came to back in chapter 24. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Why does Moses give us this information? A couple of reasons. He's setting up what's going to happen with Jacob in, in the next episode. And he's also connecting this back with the stone of verse 22 of chapter 28 and the stone of verse 18. And you notice also he refers to its place over the mouth there in verse 3. Of, of chapter 29, and Jacob had been all excited about the place in verse 19 of chapter 28 and verse 17. How awesome is this place? So by reusing these words stone and place, Moses is linking these two passages together, and he's telling us that Jacob's character really hasn't changed. We're continuing in the same story with this man who doesn't realize that here God has safely brought him to Haran, and God has brought him safely, providentially to the place where he is going to meet Rachel. But unfortunately, he's not seeking God's help, and he's not recognizing God's kindness to him. So I think that we can see here that Jacob is a man who is not walking with God. In spite of the fact that he's hearing God's word, and, and God is revealing himself to him. Jacob is not responding with reliance and trust and recognition of God's goodness to him. So in those first three verses, Jacob, he, he went east. And now we're going to see uh, Jacob, how he's, he's a man of, of boldness. He's a man who is assertive. He's a man who's, who's ready to Take charge in the situation. And so over and over again as we go through this passage, Jacob is going to take the initiative. So in verse 4, there are these shepherds here, and Jacob said to them. So Jacob's not a guy that's going to wait around and be spoken to. Jacob's a guy that when he encounters a group of people, he's going to engage them. And then he's going to tell them what he thinks, whether they are interested in his opinion or not. Jacob said to them, My brothers... And, and, you know, a striking feature of this passage of, of Genesis 29 is how often words for family members come up. Words like brother or son or daughter or father or mother. These, these kinds of words, 16 times in this passage, these words crop up. And I think the reason, one of the reasons, is that Moses wants us to reflect on what families should be and how families actually are being. And, and so here Jacob is, he's encountering these perfect strangers at this well, and he's being all friendly with them, my brothers. And, and it's almost as though it says to us, think about Jacob's brother, Esau. How did he treat Esau? Think about Jacob's father, Isaac. How did he treat Isaac? And, and so what's really going on, as Jacob says to these guys my brothers. Is Jacob brotherly? Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we're from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? 
And they said, it is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Now, if this were Abraham's servant, which it's not, but if this were Abraham's servant, we know what he would do at this point, don't we? Because at least three times in Genesis chapter 24, that guy, he, he prayed to the Lord, and then when the Lord has prospered his way, do you remember what he does? He bows in worship. He praises God. I mean, Rachel is the person that Jacob is seeking. Rachel has come to the east for a wife from this line, and now here she is at the well. See, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I would appreciate very much if I, were, if I were a shepherd in Haran and some guy showed up from Canaan and he started telling me how to do my job. And he started telling me what time it was or was not for. I mean, what, this is not Jacob's business to come up and tell these people, you shepherds are here at the wrong time. Well, I don't see a flock of sheep with you. I mean, who are you to tell me how to do my job? And, and I didn't ask for your opinion. And you don't know the local customs. You don't know the reasons that we might have for doing it this way. What, what gives you the right to think that you know what you're doing? Well, Jacob thinks he knows. And he's not afraid to tell them, water the sheep and go pasture them. And then they explain in verse 8, but they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. And while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. So uh, J Jacob has this local custom explained to him. And then while he was still speaking with them, Rachel arrives on the scene. And this is very similar to chapter 24, verse 14, although there are differences too. Back in 24, 15, the servant of Abraham is praying He's not bossing around the locals, right? He's come to the well, and, and he seeks the Lord. And before he had finished speaking in 2415, behold, Rebekah, and then we're, her identity is, is given to us. She arrives, and then we're told of her appearance in verse 16, that she was very attractive. Well, now, a very similar situation. Rachel arrives. And here's, here's Jacob again. He's impetuous. He's assertive. He is entrepreneurial. And he's, he's not bothered by local custom. And so they've explained to him about the, the well. But verse 10, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Now, people interpret this differently. I mean, some people suggest that perhaps this was this massive stone that took a Herculean act of strength to move. And maybe that's what's going on. Maybe, maybe Jacob sees this woman and, and he is so inspired by her and so motivated by who she is and his, his attraction to her that he goes over to that rock and just moves it out of the way. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe it has more to do with what these people consider to be appropriate and an agreed-upon treaty that Jacob is just totally and completely disregarding at this point. I mean, I, I'm inclined to that view simply because I think it, it probably more fits the, the narrative. I think probably these, these 
groups, these shepherds who water their flocks from this particular well, they've agreed together on how they're going to do things. And Jacob shows up, and he's not, he's not bothered by their arrangement, by their treaty. He sees Rachel. He thinks it's time for the sheep to be watered. And so he takes charge, and he gets it done. And then his impetuosity just continues. Verse 11, he has not identified himself. He, he, does, he has not told Rachel who he is. And, and, I mean, we haven't even had a first date. But look at verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel. I mean, he just takes charge of the situation, takes control. You know, to go back to that servant in chapter 24, when Rebecca arrived, he, he worshiped the Lord. Chapter 24, um, when she arrives and... The, uh, it becomes clear that the Lord has prospered his journey. Verse 26, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. The Lord is providentially meeting Jacob's needs. The Lord has mercifully, kindly kept Jacob safe and brought him to his destination and brought him what he needs in order for the fulfillment of, promise, fulfillment of the promise to be realized. And Jacob flexes his muscles and acts like he's the one in charge. And, and I think that the, the text is, is holding these two uh, differing ways of living out to us and saying, which way will you take? Which way will you live? Uh, in verse 11, when we read, Jacob kissed Rachel, the next phrase is, and wept aloud. And, and that's, that's sort of a condensed translation it's actually the exact same wording that you have in 2738 when it says that Esau lifted up his voice and wept. It, and it's a striking parallel between 2738 where Esau lifted up his voice and wept and now Jacob, he kisses Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Now, in, in terms of the moment that Jacob is, is living, I think he does feel this cathartic sense of relief and, and gladness that the woman that he came here to get, here she is. But in terms of the narrative, I think that Moses is saying Esau was defrauded by Jacob and he lifted up his voice and wept. And now Jacob is the one who's lifting up his voice and weeping. And the reason Moses is doing that is because of what's going to happen in the ensuing narrative with Laban. Jacob is about to be defrauded in the same way that, that Esau was. Rachel's response is exactly like Rebecca's. Verse 12, Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebecca's son, and she ran and told her father. This is exactly what Rebecca did back in chapter 24. She runs home to her household, and in, back in 24, the same thing happens. Laban comes running out to meet Abraham's servant. Well, look what happens here in verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him. And at this point in the narrative, Laban is taking over. So Jacob has arrived, and Jacob has, has been assertive and impetuous, but now Jacob has met his match. And, and he, he has met one, he has come up against one, who is more shrewd than he is. 
So Laban comes running out to him, and then we read there in verse 13 that he embraced him. This is the exact same Hebrew word used to describe the way that a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife. So there's marital terminology here, and there's also marital terminology in verse 14 when Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. That's Genesis 2.23. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And, and I think that, that this is intentional. The author of the book has, has given us these terms from Genesis 2, 23 and 24 because a marriage is about to happen, but I think he wants us to contrast the way that Laban acts like he's going to be all loving. Laban's going to be a brother. Laban's going to be family. Laban's going to be a father. Laban's going to provide... Actually... That's what Laban is acting like. But what Laban actually does is very, very different, shockingly different. So Laban comes out and he embraces Jacob and kissed him. And he brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And, and probably Jacob is explaining why he's come, who he is. And I suspect that Jacob's probably not altogether forthright about how he got the blessing, but, but probably, probably among what is communicated is, well, I'm the younger son, but my father blessed me in view of what we're going to see. I'm the younger son, but my father blessed me, and he sent me here to find a wife from the clan. And I suspect that Jacob probably didn't reveal everything there was to know about how he wound up with that blessing. But Laban is very shrewd. Laban is probably thinking on these things. And so Jacob stays with him. And then verse 15, Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And the terminology here for older and younger it should, it should call to mind the whole interaction between Jacob and Esau. Because back in 25, when, when uh, the revelation was made, you remember uh, uh, Rebecca, it, the children are struggling together in her womb. And she seeks the Lord, why is this happening to me? And the Lord tells her back in 25, 23, he says, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And now Moses is using that same terminology of older and younger to, to describe uh, Leah and Rachel. And then we're told in verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. This note that Leah's eyes were weak, it's... it's it's not exactly clear what's going on here. Uh, it could be taken to mean that she had a delicate, tender appearance, as in she's a loving person, or it could be taken to mean that she was unattractive, particularly in, in light of the, the way that the attractiveness of Rachel seems to be emphasized there. We don't know. We don't ultimately know. I think it could be either. But what, what is emphasized is the attractiveness of Rachel, and Jacob is drawn to Rachel Apparently for that reason, Jacob is attracted to Rachel, not to Leah. And so, verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. 
Now, I just want to pause here and say, there is more to love than physical attraction. I'm not saying physical attraction is nothing. It's a, it's a great thing. But there is more to love than physical attraction. And in view of what we've seen about Jacob in this narrative, I don't think we'd be ready to call Jacob a very loving person. I mean, I think a loving person, when his mom comes to him and he says, I want, she says, I want you to go defraud your brother by deceiving your father. I think a loving person would say, how can you suggest that I would do such a thing? And then I think a loving person, in view of what's going to develop here, I think a loving person is going to wind up making different choices than the ones that Jacob makes. So in view of the context, it seems to me that Jacob's love for Rachel is really, really superficial. And, and pro it's probably the kind of love that you hear on the radio in secular music, where you could probably slot the word lust in there and it would ring more true. But we're told there in verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. It's interesting that there's going to be this seven-year agreement because in Israel later, in, in the Mosaic Law, you get all these instructions about how somebody can become a bondservant for seven years. And then in the seventh year, they're, they're going to uh, be released. They're going to be granted their freedom. And if they've leased their property in association with their service, their, their property is going to return to them. So there's this seven-year arrangement that's made. Laban said, now, again, I think Laban is a very shrewd person. And I think Laban immediately recognizes, here's this younger man who came to me claiming that he's got the blessing. And he wants my younger daughter. And I think that probably Laban's wheels are turning and he's already thinking, because it's clear that Jacob is saying, I want to serve you seven years for Rachel. But Laban has his own agenda. And Laban's own agenda is for him to look like a man of honor in the community. And for him to look like a man of honor in the community, can't marry off that younger daughter before the older daughter gets married off. And so Laban's wheels, I, I suspect, are already turning. And he's already probably plotting what he's going to do. But he says here in verse 19, it's better that I should give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And now here's Jacob, assertive again, impetuous, entrepreneurial, give me what's mine. Jacob said to Laban, verse 21, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Look, we fulfilled the contract, pay up. Verse 22, so Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Now you may be thinking, how in the world could this happen? Well, probably in that culture, these women are veiled in the wedding ceremony. And, and probably in that culture, there was some measure of... Um, Alcoholic consumption. So I don't know that Jacob was tipsy, but I suspect that Leah was veiled, and it's a possibility that his senses were dulled. And in that culture, they didn't have, you know, electricity and light switches. So ceremonies that take place at night are probably not nearly as well lit. It's not altogether clear who, who's who. 
And Laban pulls this off. Now, I would invite you to, to just reflect on this with me for a few moments. What kind of father does this to his daughters? This man knows Laban. He knows Jacob was serving for Rachel. And he knows that Jacob was not interested in Leah. So he has to know. Jacob's not going to be happy about this when he realizes what's happened. And Leah's going to be stuck in that situation. He has to know that. And he doesn't care. He, he has to know Rachel was probably excited about getting married to Jacob. And I think his next thought is, who cares? I don't care what Rachel wants. And then surely Leah has the wherewithal to see what's happening. Jacob has been serving my father for my sister, and now my father is compelling me to be the one who is married? I don't think this is going to go well. And this is my life we're talking about. This is not going to go well for anybody. What kind of father does this to his daughters? What kind of father does this to his son-in-law? That man's not going to be happy with me in the morning, but I don't care. I will have my way. I will preserve my reputation. I will do what I want to do in this situation. I will exert my authority, and I will show my power. You see who's central for Laban. Laban's not thinking about other people. You know, when we looked at Jacob in chapter 27, when he steals the blessing, I think I entitled that sermon something like, How to Ruin Your Life and Wreck Your Family. We could have done that one this time too, couldn't we? How to Ruin Your Life and Wreck Your Family. Set up an arranged marriage and then deceive the son-in-law by sending in the other daughter. And we know, we know, if you've read Genesis, you know what's going to issue from this. Rachel and Leah, if there was a sisterly relationship before, not anymore. Not anymore. And if there was peace between Jacob and Laban before this, not after this. In fact, as, as when Jacob finally gets away from Laban, when he finally gets away from him, uh, it's the Lord who has to intervene and keep Laban from attacking Jacob by force going to war against him. And so I think we can say that Laban, Laban has been worse to Jacob, his kinsman, his sister's son. When Jacob arrives, they, they actually use the word brother. Jacob says to, to Rachel, I am your father's brother, and brother there just means kinsman or something like that. Jacob treats him worse than you would treat a slave. Because, I'm sorry, Laban treats Jacob worse than you would treat a slave. Leviticus 8, 19, Leviticus 19, verse 13 says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Well, Rachel is the wage for the hired worker. And Laban doesn't pay up. And also, Leviticus 18, verse 18, you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister. 
It's not to be done. Why? Well, because there's going to be strife if you've got rival wives, and even more if they're sisters. I mean, can you imagine all of the, uh, given what plays out, the competition, the fear, the doubt, the uncertainty that's going to play itself out in the lives of Rachel and Leah. Every time Leah gets pregnant, Rachel is thinking, he's going to love her more this time. Every time, every time Leah looks at Jacob, is he finally going to love me now? It's awful. And so I think that this text is, is really just putting this before us and saying to us, you will love yourself or you will love others. And here's a picture of a man who loves himself, Laban. Is this what you want? Do you want to ruin your life and wreck your family? Uh, notice there in verse 23, in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave and that take and give language, we've seen this before. This is what Sarah did with Hagar. She took Hagar and gave her to Abram. And it's also what Eve did with the fruit back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And I think Moses wants us to think of that earlier sin as Laban takes his daughter Leah and gives to Jacob. Verse 24, Laban gave his female servant to Zilpah, his daughter Leah, to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? We've seen that question before too, haven't we? The Lord says to the woman in Genesis 3.13, what is this that you have done? Um, Pharaoh actually says to Abram in Genesis 12, what is this that you have done? Abimelech says it to Isaac, what is this that you have done? And there's also probably a, a reference to Rebekah's words to Jacob back in chapter 28, verse 27, verse 45. Until your brother's anger turns away from you. This is after Jacob has stolen Esau's blessing and he forgets what you have done to him. And so now Jacob, the deceiver, the defrauder, has been deceived and defrauded. The Bible regularly teaches that those who dig a pit will fall into it themselves. Our sins have a way of rebounding on us. It, it's this ricochet effect. And, and God providentially orders the universe so that so that the crimes that we commit are matched by the justice that comes upon us. The punishment fits the crime. And that's what's happening with Jacob here. He has defrauded and he is being defrauded. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make what Laban is doing right. But Jacob gets as good as he gave. This is exactly what he did to Esau. And so, you know, as we, as we look at this, and, and we ask ourselves questions like, how will Leah and Rachel feel about their father after this? How will Jacob feel about Laban after this? We can also ask the question, how will Laban 
feel about himself after this. And probably he's so self-absorbed and so self-consumed and so indifferent to others that he just stays on the surface and never realizes it. But someday it's going to come home to Jacob. When the Lord touches him, the Lord is going to cripple him and, and the Lord is going to bring home to Jacob the impact of what he's done. At this point, before we go on, I want to stop and ask, what should be done now? Now that, now that Jacob has consummated the relationship with Leah, we might ask ourselves, what would a godly man do in that circumstance? He's married to Leah. What would you do in that circumstance? Would you take a second wife? Would you have convictions about right and wrong strong enough that would make it where even if the culture said, go ahead and marry the second one, go ahead and marry the sister, we'll authorize that, we'll tell you that's moral and acceptable. Would you have convictions about right and wrong that even if you lived in that kind of culture would make you say, oh no, I'm not going to do that. I know where that goes. I've seen that play out. My grandmother, Sarah, she tried the whole second wife business, business and it only resulted in pain and affliction and misery in the family. I've seen that play out. I don't want that. How would it go for you? Would, would you be prepared to say, I'm married to this woman. Evidently, this is the woman that God wanted me to be married to. And I'm now going to embrace the situation that God has put me into and I'm going to rejoice in God's gift to me of a good wife. And I'm going to make the best life that I can with Leah. You know, the only way you'd be prepared to do that is if you'd already been living that way. It would be awfully hard to be Jacob up to this point and now to be Abraham's servant all of a sudden and to be ready to rejoice in God's providence and to hope all things and believe all things and be grateful to God and start that kind of a radical shift, that's going to take a miracle of grace. But if you're already walking with God, I think that's your course. You're already walking with God. I think probably you, that could even be easy for you. Something that you're glad about. Something that you look at and as the years go by and you thrive and flourish continuing to walk with God, you look back on and you say, well, Laban meant that for evil, but God meant it for good. We'll get another character later in the book of Genesis that I think would probably respond just like that if he were in Jacob's shoes. I mean, that's how Joseph responded to being sold into slavery and then thrown into prison unjustly. You meant it for evil, you guys that wanted to kill me and then instead made me a slave. But God meant this for good, to keep many people alive. That's what Joseph says. If you walk with God, whatever twists and turns providence may take in your life, you'll be prepared to say, I trust God. I believe he's going to work all things together for my good. And so the job for me here is to rejoice in him, to trust him, and to walk with him and to make the best of this. That's what it means to be godly. Verse 
26, Laban gives this explanation. You know, it's a sorry explanation. It's a horrible explanation. Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. I think there's a sort of slap in Jacob's face. They may do it that way back in Canaan to bless the younger, not the older, but we don't do that way over here. And Jacob, I know there's more to this story than you let on about how you wind up blessed. I think Laban is sort of slapping Jacob in the face, but he's also probably giving deference to his culture and, and whatever. He made a deal to give Rachel to Jacob for seven years of service, so he should have kept the deal. Verse 27, complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And, and this brings us back to Jacob's choice. And it brings us back to the question of conviction. Would you take a second life? What would be stronger in your, in your life? Your conviction about what's right and your commitment to do what's right or your fleshly desire to have what you want. That's really what, that's the choice that faces us every time we sin. Every time we act on lust, every time we give way to it, every time we act on greed, every time we act on pride, what we're saying is, I want what I want more than I want what I know is right. Verse 28, Jacob did so and completed her week. You know, here's the thing about, about not doing what's right and choosing instead fleshly desire. It's enslaving. It's enslaving. And Jacob winds up serving Laban not just for another seven years, but for another 13 years. Jacob is, Jacob is a slave to Laban for 20 years. And he only gets away at the end of all that time because he flees. That's the only way he gets away from his father-in-law. His father-in-law defrauded him and enslaved him. That's what Jacob's father-in-law did. And, and he'll later complain to Laban, you have changed my wages 10 times. Laban is not a trustworthy character. Sin is an awful master. Lust is a horrible master to serve. Greed is a horrible master to serve. Pride is a horrible master to serve. We read in verse 29, Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. And then verse 30, so Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Such tragic, painful words. You know, there's statements in the, in the wisdom literature about how awful it is when a woman who is not loved gets a husband who doesn't love her. That's Leah's sad experience. And he served Laban for another seven years. What, what will keep us? What will, what will enable us to avoid Jacob's choice? I mean, I think, I think it would have been better for Jacob if he had not also married Rachel. He would have had a happier home. God would have kept the promises. God would have accomplished his purpose. And Jacob would have been a happier man all those years. Had he walked with God, had he known God, had he, had he experienced God's goodness, how, how do we get to the place where we make that choice? What we need 
is we need, we need to understand what Michael Morales writes in his, in his book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, when he's talking about what's really at work in the whole Levitical sacrificial system, particularly with the Day of Atonement. And he says this. He says, we have to discern that holiness is not an end in itself, but is a means to an end. Holiness is a means to an end, which is the real theme, the abundant life of joy with God in the house of God. That's what holiness is for. Holiness is for the presence of God. Holiness is for the enjoyment of God. And then he writes that the tabernacle's grades of holiness are seen as grades of life with the holy of holies representing fullness of life because that's where God is. And where God is is where fullness of life is. So what would enable Jacob to say, well, I didn't want to marry Leah, but I'm not going to sin by taking a second life, a second wife. What would enable him to say that would be a conviction and a, him being convinced that what I need is holiness so that I can enjoy God. And pleasure is not found in the satisfaction of my flesh or the, the entertainment of my eye with Rachel's beauty. Pleasure is found in God. That's what Jacob needs. He needs to be convinced that God is more pleasurable, more rewarding, and more to be desired than the sins of his flesh. That's what he needs to be convinced of. That's what we need to be convinced of. And that brings me back to where I started at the beginning. Proverbs chapter 19. Where Solomon writes, strike a scoffer, and the simple will learn prudence. I think Jacob's a scoffer at this point in the narrative. I think Laban's a scoffer. And we're a bunch of simpletons. Will we learn prudence from their lives? Reprove a man of understanding, and he will gain knowledge. And then Proverbs 21, 11. When a scoffer is punished, the simple becomes wise. When a wise man is instructed, he gains knowledge. Will you learn from Jacob's folly? Will you, as you go through your life this week, and you're confronted with some temptation, and the thought comes into your mind, that would be really pleasurable. I would really like to indulge myself in that way. Will you respond, I've seen where that goes. I've seen the misery, the havoc, the ruin, the wreck in Jacob and Laban's lives. And there's greater pleasure to be found. In fact, there's fullness of joy to be found. There's eternal pleasures to be found at the right hand of the Lord. Better is a day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. That's, that's what we need. That's what we need to be convinced of. If you're here this morning and you, you don't identify as a Christian, you don't really know what I'm talking about here, we would love to talk further with you after the service. We would love to talk with you about what it looks like to turn away from sin and to put your hope in Jesus and to live for the outworking of the promise, to live your life as an act of worship to God and, and to be free from all the sins 
that have enslaved you. So if you're looking for freedom from the slavery to sin that you're experiencing, I'll be standing right back here by these two doors, and, and probably you can talk to the person sitting next to you about what it looks like to, to embrace the gospel, to, to know Christ as your Savior, and to, to live for God in all areas of your life. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would so work in our hearts that we know you, that we know that fullness of life and fullness of joy is to be found where you are. The Lord Jesus told us that he came that we might have life and have it to the full. He said that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. And he claimed to be the way and the truth and the life. Lord, convince us that he's telling the truth and help us to act like we believe it. Help us to make choices that look like we believe it. Lord, make us loving people, self-giving people, not selfish people. Keep us, Lord, from living like Laban lived. Keep us from living like Jacob lived. Make us like Joseph, we pray that we might be like Jesus. Amen.